Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, again, good morning, City Church. It's an exciting morning here for our church family. Um, we have a special guest speaker who's become a friend of mine. We've actually, our families have, just because we attend sort of the same place at times during the summer, our families have vacationed together. I've gotten to know him, his wife, and his kids. Um, his name is Abdu Murray. And a couple of things to know about Abdu is that he was a college basketball player in Buffalo and then ended up transferring to Michigan in order to play, but got injured and was never able to play. You only cheer for UVA this morning. No one else is allowed. And, um, and so, but not only that, is that Abdu was also a contact fighter, and he never lost. And so what I think I'm gonna do this morning is when Abdu comes out to join me, come on out here, Abdu. So I think, uh, what, am I, what I'm gonna do is I think I'm going to whoop him in front of the whole... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to pass. But listen, I want to pray a blessing over Abdu before he shares. You can stay seated, but pray with me. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for, for how you uniquely equip people with unique stories and giftings. And I pray as he shares his story that is ultimately yours, that you'll challenge, encourage, and touch our hearts in Christ's name. Amen? Let's give Abdu a warm City Church welcome. Thank you very much. Make sure I'm wired for sound. I am. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Pete and, and Peter and Victoria Sorensen made it possible for me to be here. Uh, and I'm going to be here for a few days. I got something tonight I'll be sharing with over at the, the Central, which is the um, original place. Is that right? Um, and then uh, Chi Alpha tomorrow night and then some other things as well. All right. Great. Uh, I got to tell you, though, before I even start, I was rejoicing with you over the victory yesterday because, you know, my, I remember the year when I was at Michigan, um, and, uh, you know, I was the, it was the Fab Five time, and we played Duke in the finals, and we, we you know, we lost. Um, and so whenever they lose, I just think it's awesome. Um, so I was super happy that uh, I saw that highlight reel this morning. I got in last night around 2 o'clock in the morning. Otherwise, I would have tried my best to be in that audience uh, and see that happen. But I got in around 2 o'clock in the morning last night um, and uh, to be here with you all today. So if I make any kind of sense today, then you know there's proof that God exists because the Holy Spirit's with me. Um, but thank you so much for the warm welcome and for having me. Uh, what I want to share with you is my story uh, about how I came to Christ. And uh, if you, may, you may know this if you know anything about uh, my background, but I came from a Muslim background. Uh, there are two kinds of Muslims. Well, let's see, there's multiple kinds of Muslims, but the two major divisions within Islam are the Sunni and the Shia. And the Sunni are the majority, and the Shia are the minority. You, you hear the word Shiite all the time. Uh, well, the Shia, you say it Shia. But um, we were Shia when I was growing up, and uh, I took it very seriously. And, you know, a funny thing happened on the way to the mosque, as they say, and um, I uh, found myself staring headlong into the, the cross and seeing its credibility and beauty. So I want to give you that story today, but before I do, I, I'm reminded, uh, I'm a lawyer as well, uh, trained as a trial lawyer. That doesn't get a whole lot of cheers. The Michigan thing gets cheers, <laughs> the, but no one cheers for the lawyer part. Um, I want to tell you a sort of a story. Uh, it's not just an icebreaker. It actually has some relevance to what I want to share with you this morning. 
the story of this lawyer, and like, you know, I was blessed with a lot of lawyers who were actually great people and had tons of scruples and were uh, really uh, people of integrity. But, you know, there are some, I'm not you're aware of this, but sometimes they're not so honest. Um, and this is a story about a guy who was the, you know, stereotype when you think of a lawyer. He was a stereotype lawyer. He would bend the rules, he would lie, he would do whatever it took to win his cases and all this, and he amasses an enormous fortune. And so he has this huge property he loves to just walk on every so often, and it's got wooded, and it's got streams and all this. So he's walking in this beautiful fall day, and the, the leaves are falling, the squirrels are being squirrely, the uh, streams are streaming and all this, and he comes across a bear. And he sees the bear, and the bear snarls at him, and it strips its teeth, and he knows what that means. So he runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction, trying to get away from the bear, trying to get home. But the bear is faster than he is, and so the bear knocks him down. And as the bear raises its huge paw to kill him, he says, oh my God, and the bear stops. And the leaves fall, stop falling midair, and the stream stops streaming, and the squirrels are no longer squirrely. And a light comes from the heavens, and a booming voice says, you have denied the truth, and you have used other people for your own gain. Why should I save you now? And the lawyer is a good lawyer, so he finds a loophole. And he says, it would be hypocritical for me to become a Christian right now, wouldn't it? But could you make the bear a Christian? Um, and God says, very well. And the light goes back up, and the leaves start to fall, the squirrels get squirrely, the stream stream, and the bear puts his paws together and says, thank you, Father, for this food I'm going to receive. <laughs> Now, the point there is that you can't outlawyer God. But the, the more point, poignant point I want to tell you is this, is that um, oftentimes when you run from the truth, even if you claim to love it, when you run from the truth, the truth has a way of catching up. And when it does catch up to you when you've run from it, it's painful. And there is a, a cost to pay in that. And this is something the Bible is very clear and upfront with us about. Jesus never says when you follow the truth, everything will be great. He never says that. What he does say is that I have overcome the world, but in this world you will have trouble. And so how we actually deal with truth, the attitude with which we approach these things is critically important. And if you get anything out of the story I'm going to share with you today, if you get anything out of it, I hope you get at least something, but if you get one thing out of it, I hope it's this that when someone is challenged to change their worldview, it's always accompanied by pain and discomfort and unpleasantness, but it's worth it. Every time, without fail, if that worldview change is a lead to the truth. And that's exactly my story. And I say that because my guess is someone in this room is having a hard time considering the possibility that their worldview might change. You know, you take an opinion, something you have hold as an opinion, you hold it with an open hand, and you're willing to change it. You offer it to people, and they might take it, they might not take it, you might take it back and say, okay, they didn't want it, or you offer it with an open hand because someone might change it, and you're okay with that. But a conviction or a worldview is something you hold with a clenched fist, and the reason you hold it with a clenched fist is not because you're defiant, it's because it's close to you and you hold it dear. You ever try to pry someone's fist open? There's a lot of pain involved in that. And that is a good sort of word picture for the story that I'm going to share with you. 
So I was raised uh, as a Shia Muslim, and I was raised in uh, the States. Um, I lived in the Detroit, Michigan area, but in the suburb of Detroit. So I was born in Detroit, but we moved up to a suburb of Detroit, which at the time wasn't a very diverse area. Now it's very diverse. There's tons of Indians, Pakistanis, Arabs, African Americans who live in the area. It makes for wonderful restaurant choices. It really does. But when I was growing up there, there wasn't a whole lot of diversity. There was a few Indian families here and there, a couple of Muslim families that I was aware of, but not very many at all. And I was aware of at least, I think, only one uh, black family in the entire neighborhood. So we were the sort of dollop of olive oil in the pot of rice, as it were, um, which made us sort of exotic. You know, people were like, well, what do you Muslims believe? You know, and that's not how you say it, by the way. But um, no one knew that back then. This is well before 9-11, before anybody cared about Islam. So they asked me what I, I, I believed and, you know, what is this all about and all that kind of stuff, which made for a great opportunity for me to share my beliefs. Now, in the 80s, I'm a child of the 80s, and in the 80s and in the 90s, there was this movement, you know, the, 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 the postmodern idea that, you know, what you believe is true for you, and I have my beliefs and they're true for me, and yours are equally valid and equally true, even though mine contradict yours. You leave yours to yourself, and I'll leave mine to myself, and we'll all be happy. Well, I would have none of that, um, because I said, you know, if something's true, it's just true. It's not true for me, it's true whether I like it or not. And because I thought Islam was the cat's whiskers, man, I thought it was true, I wanted you to believe it. So I would engage in conversations with people from an early age. From an early age, I would engage in conversations with folks trying to get them to talk about matters of ultimate destiny. You know, I was a red-blooded American teenager as well, so I liked sports, I liked movies, I liked girls, I liked all this stuff. Talking about that stuff was great, but after a while, it became sort of mundane. And I'm like, we need to talk about something deep now. I'm talking middle school and high school and on because I really did believe that there was an ultimate destiny all of us are pushing towards and we need to believe the right thing. So I was engaging with people on these issues all the time. But it was very conversational. You know, I wasn't thumping my Quran at them or anything like that. I was just talking with them. And over the course of the conversation, usually in the beginning, somewhere along the way, I would ask people a question. Now, I was an equal opportunity faith knocker outer of her. It wasn't just Christians I was after, although Christians were low-hanging fruit. You see, in the 80s and in the 90s, it was still fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you kind of didn't mean it. Now it's not fashionable. Now you just give up the pretense altogether. But back then, people would say, I'm a Christian, which meant not atheist. Um, who knows what else it means you know, to them, it just meant that kind of thing. So I'd ask them a question. Why are you a Christian? It's a great question. It's a question we should all be asking ourselves all the time if you are a Christian. So I asked them, why are you a Christian? And they would tell me something, either how they became a Christian or whatever it was. I'm like, no, no, I'm not asking you how you became one. I'm asking you, why are you still one? Now, most people didn't give me a lengthy story or a robust intellectual understanding of their faith. What they told me was something like this. Well, um, uh, I'm a Presbyterian because um, my parents, we, we, we go to this uh, Presbyterian, right? Presbyterian church. Uh, on Christmas and Easter. So I'm a Presbyterian, and they would actually answer with that little lilt in their voice. I'm like, was that a question or an answer? I'm not even sure you know. Um, then I'd say, wait, 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 you're telling me that you believe something? You're trusting your eternal soul to a worldview that someone else believes. Have you thought it through at all? And the answer was usually some form of no. And I would say, you know what? I have thought it through for you. Let me give you 15 reasons why you're wrong. 
Now, I did it conversationally. Again, I wasn't trying to be a jerk about it, although I'm sure I was uh, occasionally, but I was trying to be very conversational about it because I wanted to offer them what I thought was the beauty and truth of Islam. So I would create a vacuum. I would sort of knock the faith out of them. In the vacuum, I would fill it with Islamic theology and ideas and these kind of things, and I was pretty good at this. I mean, there were people who were actually looking at the Quran as God's word, who were praying the five daily prayers, or at least praying some form of the five daily prayers, and fasting Ramadan with me, and all these things. I was pretty good at this. But there were these occasionally annoying people who knew what they were talking about, um, and uh, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a trial lawyer because I'm a debater. By, at heart. I like to get into the, I don't like to quarrel, I hate quarreling. I do like debating, um, and there's a difference. Uh, one has, it's all a matter of motivation. So I like to debate, and I like to win my debates, thank you very much, and these people were just a little bit tougher to beat than other people were, if I could beat them at all. And so they knew what they were talking about, so I began to think, you know, this Christianity thing, I, I gotta get to the bottom of this so I can find the ammo I need to knock the faith out of these people. That's what I was trying to do. Well, along the way, um, <clears throat> there was uh, these guys who came to my door. Now, I was at University of Michigan for my undergraduate days, and these guys were going door to door at the apartment complexes in Ann Arbor. Now, if you know anything about Ann Arbor, what you know about it is, is that it's like Berkeley, California, but cold. Um, not exactly a bastion of conservative Christian thought. Uh, so these Conservative Christian guys were going door to door at the apartment complexes talking about Jesus. But people didn't want to hear it. They would either slam the door in their face, they would say something rude to them, or they wouldn't answer the door at all. But I was an evangelist for Islam. So these guys came to my door, I opened the door, and there they were, and I said, you guys deliver? This is great. Um, Dave and Pete, that's who they were, Dave and Pete. Now, uh, Pete was this tall, older guy, uh, almost no hair, uh, Dave was a short, stocky guy. He had you know, hair come out of everywhere, basically. Um, I called them my walking number 10. That's what they look like to me. Um, so they came to the door, and I'm like, come on in. And we, they came in, and uh, with me and my roommates, we made them very uncomfortable for hours at a time. Now, they kept on coming back. Like every Thursday, they would come back to our apartment to talk about Jesus. And I could tell after the first one, they were like, what did we get ourselves into? Because I had asked them numerous questions and I was peppering with questions and making them all the time sort of having to respond to my objections. But they were offering a couple of things of their own and we engaged really, really well. And the reason we engaged well is because I could tell after the second or third meeting, Dave and Pete weren't interested in going back to their church and saying, I got this guy on the hook. They actually cared about me. They wanted to see me in heaven. And I wanted to see them in God's paradise. So we had a mutual interest in each other's destiny. And so we had a good conversations. Now sometimes Dave and Pete gave me answers. And sometimes they gave me the best answer you can give a person. I don't know. Can I get back to you? And then they would get back to me. They would research it, come back, offer me a VHS tape, because that was how you watched videos back then. Um, <laughs> offer me a tape or offer me an article or something that would answer an objection or deal with an issue. Well, these guys were tough. I did not find them to be easy pushes, so I wanted to find out something that would knock the faith out of these guys. Now, because I was interested in Christianity to find out the flaws in it, I was taking all these comparative religion courses in my uh, undergraduate days, and I had a professor of New Testament uh, who was Swedish, and I, I think he was Swedish because he sounded like the Muppet from the Chefs, uh, the Chef from the Muppets. Um, 
uh, and he um, would give me a good dose of both sides. He'd give me some conservative ideas on the biblical scriptures uh, and how they actually were preserved. And then he'd give me the good liberal sides that say, you know, it was changed and the ideas of Jesus' divinity was a legendary embellishment that happened over time and he wasn't really the God-man in the beginning of Christianity. They sort of added that later and all that stuff. So I was using that stuff against these guys. And so they were responding to me. But I wanted to find something. I said, you know what would really get these guys? If I showed them a contradiction, a fundamental important contradiction in the Gospels where Mark says X and Luke says not X, the exact opposite of each other, that would knock the faith out of these guys because they were like the Terminator. No matter how many times I knocked them down, they sort of lumber back up at me again. You know, like, I got to knock these guys down and keep them down for the count so I can give them Islam. Well, I'm walking down the street and there are these Gideons handing out Bibles. And uh, out of these boxes on the street corner. So I walk, I walk over, I grab a Bible. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to get the Oxford Bible that I had because that was considered, you know, liberal or whatever. I want to get one of theirs, you know, a translation that they would trust. So I grab one from the Gideons. I try to convert them to Islam, but it didn't work. Um, <clears throat> and I go back to my apartment. So I go back to my apartment, knowing these guys are coming in a few days, and I'm reading the Bible to try to find a fundamental, irreconcilable contradiction to show these guys, and I was a hard, having a hard time doing it. So for some reason, I started in Luke. Um, I was looking at Paul's letters as well, and I come across Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following. Now, the context here is important because John the Baptist is baptizing people. That's why he's called that. Um, so they're coming to him, and he says to them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? starting in verse 7. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying there is judgment coming for your sins. That's what he's talking about. Who told you to flee from God's judgment? And then he says this remarkable thing where he says, therefore bear fruit keeping with repentance and do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Now, do you see the import of what he's saying here? What he's saying here is this, is that you are relying on tradition to save you. Tradition does not save. Truth saves. Why did this arrest me suddenly there? The reason it arrested me is because that's what I was saying to Christians. I would ask them, why are you a Christian? They would say tradition, and I would say not good enough. John the Baptist, for whatever reason, decides he's going to agree with me. Now, keep the context in mind here, okay, in my own heart and in my own mind. See, as a Muslim, uh, Muslims believe this, that there were parts of the Bible that were revealed over time, and that the Quran, the holy book of the Muslims, names these parts of the Bible by name, the uh, Taurat, the five books of Moses, or the Torah, the Zabur, the Psalms of David, and the Injil, which is the gospel of Jesus. It literally names these things and says that these were revealed by God. But Islam teaches, not the Quran, by the way, but Islam teaches that those books became changed and corrupted, either intentionally or unintentionally, over time. And one of the reasons why God revealed the Quran to Muhammad was to fix all of those corruptions and bring us back to true monotheism. So as I'm reading this book and reading those verses, the thing that is, is, occurs to me is, I don't believe this book. I think it's been changed, and yet it's agreeing with me. That's tough to swallow. But here's the power of this. You can see the beautiful irony in the way this works. Here I am, 
telling Christians, tradition doesn't save you. Truth is what saves. And in all the times I had asked Christians, why are you a Christian? And they would say tradition, and I would get on them. They never asked me, why are you a Muslim? And the reason was not because they didn't want to know. It's because I put them on their heels. They were constantly defensive to my objections. Now, I gave them reasons why I was a Muslim, because I wanted to show them the evidence and all these things. But if someone asked, no, why are you really a Muslim? The answer would have been tradition. I want to pause for a moment and just share something with you. You know, I work for one of the most eloquent speakers in the world, Ravi Zacharias. And he'll be the first one to tell you his words aren't even close to being as powerful as the words in that book. I was a skeptic. I didn't want to believe a word of it. And yet here I was, halted by those words that I once thought was corrupted and changed and retranslated and all these things, but the evidence shows was preserved over the course of 20 centuries, borne aloft by the Holy Spirit so that a young Muslim skeptical guy could read those words and have his heart pricked. May you never speak with eloquent and lofty arguments in a closed Bible. Open that book. It changes people. I'm telling you, I know this. What it did for me was it made, give me a slight course correction in my thinking. You see, by this time, I had been familiar with the arguments in favor of Christianity and in favor of Islam and against Christianity and against Islam, but I had been so biased in my thinking that I was swallowing everything in favor of Islam wholesale without thinking about it and everything against Christianity wholesale uncritically. I was just swallowing those things. And what John the Baptist's words got me to do was to say, I'm going to try to be unbiased. I'm not going to believe something just because it's my tradition. I'm going to believe something because it's true. <clears throat> now, I was fully expectant that Islam would win the day, that because of the amount of evidence I had amassed over my search and because of the amount of bad arguments in favor of Christianity, I was going to win the day with Islam. But I was going to be fair. I was going to try my hardest to be unbiased. This is what happened. I had a slight course correction in my thinking. Not a major one. I didn't become a Christian on that, on that, on that ratty little chair I, that I used to have. I had a slight shift in my thinking. You see, if you're in New York, and you're going across the Atlantic Ocean, and let's say you want to go to Portugal, the westernmost country in Europe, and your course is off by 10 degrees, or 7 degrees, something like that. When you leave port, about a mile out, you're not going to be much further than when you started. You know, you'll be okay. Five miles out, you're a little more divergent. Ten miles out, you're in trouble. But the crime across the Atlantic Ocean, you're not going to be in Portugal, in Europe. You're going to be off the coast of West Africa. A small course correction over a long period of time can lead to an entirely different destination. That's exactly what happened through the pages of Scripture. So it was with this mindset that everything I had come to believe about the Bible and about the Quran and about all this stuff was challenged. I mean radically challenged. Now, it wasn't by a Christian I had met. It wasn't by a Muslim. It wasn't even by a person. The challenge to everything I had come to believe was from the Quran, the book that I had trusted to be the sole authority from God or the prime authority from God. You see, remember what I said, Muslims believe that the Bible was once God's word but became changed and corrupted over time and the Quran came in the seventh century in Arabia to fix all that. So you get the sequence, Bible revealed, Bible corrupted, Quran revealed, everything corrected. See that succession? 
Well, then I'm reading the Quran with this changed mindset, and I come across a couple passages that I had read before, but I hadn't seen the impact before. In Al-Ma'idah, which is the fifth chapter of the Quran, verses 46 and 47, it discusses the truth that was revealed to Jesus. It's referring to the gospel. And in verse 47, it says, or verse 46, it says, um, uh, what it means is, O people of the gospel, which is a euphemism for Christians, you must judge, present tense, right now, by what God has revealed in the gospel. And those who do not judge by what God has revealed are the evildoers or the rebellious ones. Hang on a second, wait a minute. I was told, Bible revealed, Bible corrupted, Quran comes. Here's the problem. If the Quran is telling Christians, you must judge by the gospel, otherwise you're an evildoer, how could they judge by a corrupted book? Do you see it? So I'm reading through this, and now I'm like, oh, that can't be the only place that says this in, and it's not. Same chapter, verse 63. The Quran says, uh, O people of the book, which is a euphemism for Christians and Jews, it says, um, shay'an So lestum ala shay'an literally means you are on nothing. The translation is you have no foundation. Jews and Christians, you have no foundation. Hatta until you, all of you, present tense, observe the Torah and the gospel and all the revelations that come to you from your Lord. How could they have a foundation based on the Torah and the gospel if the Torah and the gospel are flawed? So this was radically, it was, this was seismic in its shift for me. I could not come to fathom how it was I had missed this before. See, the Quran says the Bible was right, but the Bible and the Quran don't agree on lots of things. I mean, the Quran specifically says, unbelievers are those who say God is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. Can't get more clear than that. And it says that the Trinity is a blasphemy. It even says in the fourth chapter, it says that they did not kill Jesus, because it references Jesus as a prophet. It says, but they did not kill Jesus, nor did they crucify him, but it looked like it to them. So it denies the central fact of Christianity, which is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It denies that as a historical fact. And the Bible is all about that fact. So here's the problem. If the Quran said the Bible was right, and the Bible is right, then the Quran is wrong because it says the Bible is the authority. But the dilemma goes further, because if the, the Quran says that the Bible is correct, and the Bible is not correct, the Quran is still wrong because it said the Bible was correct. <laughs> so I'm wrestling with this now. It's what Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth. <laughs> I don't want to wrestle with this, and I'm seeing, I'm confronted with it, like, what do I do with this? Oh my goodness, what do I do with this? So I begin to wrestle around with these issues and try to find the loopholes. You know, this is before I became a lawyer, but I was thinking like one. Uh, trying to find a way around the issues and find, maybe there's some nuance, maybe there's some subtlety I can skirt the issue on. Uh, and I was finding very little wiggle room, but I was trying my best to rationalize this kind of a thing. But I want to share something with you, okay? So when you talk to a Muslim, and this is important because this is a big part of my journey, and I think many Muslims as well. 
When you talk to a Muslim or you've heard about Muslims in the world, you've heard a phrase, right? Allahu Akbar, you've all heard this phrase? Allahu Akbar, right? You've heard this and you're slightly nervous because the Arab guy said it in a crowd. Um, you shouldn't laugh at that, you sinners. Um, um, usually you hear it in unfortunate circumstances. Usually you hear it when the, they say Allahu Akbar and then something blows up or someone dies or something like that. That's terribly unfortunate because the majority of Muslims are not sitting behind the stairwell at the airport, twisting their mustaches, thinking of ways to blow the place up. They're just not doing that. The vast majority are not doing that. And they say Allahu Akbar in completely peaceful circumstances. The phrase literally means God is greater. That's what it means, God is greater. So for the Muslim, God is the greatest possible being. He's the greatest conceivable being. I wanted to believe that as a Muslim. And so Christians believe the same thing. God is incomparably great. Psalm 145, where, Jesus, where David says, your greatness is unsearchable. How unfathomable is it? That is a, a, a link we have with Muslims, that we all believe that God is truly great. Now, I was rejecting Christianity because I thought Christianity insulted God's greatness. That the idea that God would be a triune being, a being with you know, one in his nature and three in his persons, that sounds like a confused tritheism to me, kind of a thing. Um, and that it made no sense, and therefore a God who doesn't make any sense can't be a God who's great. Or that he would get trapped in a body that would sweat, need to have food, and then die at the hands of the sinners he created? This is a God who is great, and I would hear Christians singing this hymn, How Great Thou Art. I, thought, I told them, you should change your hymn to How Great Thou Art, because your God's not great. Um, so God's greatness was the central idea for me. But now I'm confronted with this statement in the Quran, and multiple statements, and I can go on and on, by the way, about multiple statements in the Quran that actually affirm the Bible and the Bible's message, and, but, don't, but aren't consistent with it. So I'm confronted with this, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I deal with this? You see, I was raised to believe the Bible was changed. And the reason why Muslims say that is because the Bible contradicts the Quran. And when they finally had Bibles in Arabic, they realized it. And they thought, well, it can't be our book that's been changed or wrong. It's got to be their book. So they invented this doctrine. But here I am facing this. But I also want to believe in a God who is great. And so I begin to wrestle with the dilemma. So here's the dilemma I wrestled with. Follow me on this, this is important, but it's a very, it's sort of short, but it's really important because this is the thinking process. I believed, as all Muslims around the world believe, God is the greatest possible being. If God is the greatest possible being, he must have at least two qualities. Those qualities are omnipotence, he has to be all-powerful, because if he's not all-powerful, then he's like Zeus or Aphrodite or whatever, and why, why believe God like that? So he's gotta be all-powerful. He's also got to be trustworthy. Because if he's not trustworthy, then he could lie to you. And if he can lie to you, how would you know? I mean, it would be tough, right? I mean, if he could lie to you, and he says, oh, uh, follow me in this, this, and he's like, no, 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 I got him now. I lied to him. They're never going to find out. Why even believe in a God like that? So the greatest possible being must be moral and powerful. All powerful and trustworthy. Here's the problem. If the Bible was once God's word, but was corrupted, then only two things follow from that. Either God couldn't prevent the corruption of Scripture, or he wouldn't prevent the corruption of Scripture. I can't think of a third. So if he couldn't prevent the Scripture from becoming corrupted, that means he's not as powerful as human beings. 
He can't preserve his word. And a God who can't do that is not all-powerful, but he has to be all-powerful to be great. Do you follow me so far? So that means that option A is that God could have protected the Bible, but chose not to, which is option B. Option B is he could have, but he didn't. So if he wouldn't protect the Bible from corruption, that means he's not trustworthy because he said he would. And then he says, the Quran will be preserved for all time and never changing. Well, why would I believe you? Because you're not batting a thousand. Three other books were already changed. You see the problem? So if God uh, could but chose not to stop the corruption of Scripture, that means he's not trustworthy, which also means he's not great. So if God couldn't, he's not great. If God wouldn't, he's not great. But every Muslim believes that God is great, which means they have to believe that God would and God could, and history shows God did preserve his word. And that's what I was faced with. And I wrestled with this for quite some time. And you know, I'm trying to find the loopholes, and I'm thinking, well, maybe the Bible was changed after the Quran, and therefore the Quran is the way in which God preserves his message. And so all changes came after. So I began to look into the history of it. And when you look into the history of the biblical transmission, you see that it was faithfully and reliably transmitted down through the centuries. We have so many manuscripts of the New Testament alone and the Old Testament as well. Uh, we were recently finding things. You stick a shovel in the ground and you turn it over in the Middle East and something pops up that corroborates both the Old and the New Testaments all the time. All the time. And the script of the New Testament and the Old Testament, we're finding things that are actually showing us that what they wrote then is what we have now. Are there variants within the manuscripts? Of course there are. But those variants can be explained and we can show what the actual original is. We have, a, from all the copies that we have of the New Testament and the Old Testament, we can actually see what the original actually said. We can compare all the families of manuscripts. One scholar calls it an embarrassment of riches. So that door was closed off to me. It wasn't changed after the Quran. In fact, it was preserved for centuries before the Quran even came. So now I'm dealing with a dilemma. And somewhere deep inside me, I'm not acknowledging it at the forefront of my mind, but I'm seeing it deep inside. The reason why I'm so resistant to just embracing the gospel as true is because there's going to be a price. There's going to be a cost. So here I am, and the Quran says things like, Jesus is not God, Jesus didn't die on a cross, and the Trinity is blasphemous. And the Bible seems to affirm every single one of those things that the Quran denies. So what do you do? Well, you do what any good coward does. You compromise, and you syncretize. So what I was trying to do was play with words. I'm like, okay, so Jesus says in John, I and the Father are one. That's a pretty clear statement that he and the Father are the same being. They have the same nature. They're both divine. Yet the Quran says that it's blasphemy to say that. Yet the, and, they seem, and the Quran affirms the Bible. So how do I deal with this? Well, maybe Jesus didn't mean he and the Father were one in their nature. What he meant was he and the Father are one in their message in their goal, in their aims. We're unified in this. We're, to, we're one in this. We're together in this. Okay, whew, got out of that one. Then you see the Quran. The Quran says, They did not kill him, meaning Jesus, nor did they even crucify him, but it looked like it to them. Like, okay, that's a tougher one because you can't have the Bible, especially the New Testament, without a crucifixion. I mean, half of the time they spend 
is on the passion narrative and the crucifixion of Jesus, the gospel writers. And of course, Paul spends all his time talking about that. So how do you reconcile these two things? Ah, I found it. When you look at Isaiah, Isaiah says it was God who struck down the Messiah. It was him who wanted to strike the Messiah down for the iniquities of the people. So when the Quran says they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, maybe it's saying it wasn't their doing, it was God's plan the whole time. Okay, I got out of that one. But you see what's happening? I'm rationalizing everything. I'm finding very tenuous you know, connections between the two things, and I'm trying to rationalize. Now, if you've ever read uh, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know that the monster is not called Frankenstein. The monster actually has no name. And what Dr. Frankenstein does is he takes dead things and he sews them together, he runs a current through it, and he creates life, quote unquote. But the monster knows that it's not real, uh, not a real person. And people treat it like that and all this, and so because it doesn't know its own identity, it goes on to a uh, sort of a kill-crazy uh, rampage kind of a thing, and it's tragic. That's what I was doing. I was taking dead things. I was taking a liberalized form of Christianity that plays fast and loose with the words, and I was playing fast and loose with Islam. I was sewing them together, running my own little current through it and coming up with something new, like I was brilliant or something like that, trying to syncretize these two things. But it, like the monster in Frankenstein, would only lead to death. Because I did not want to make a choice. So, some friends invited me to church. And for some reason I said yes. So invite them to church, sometimes they come. Um, and maybe you're that person, maybe you're the person who was invited here today, for whatever reason, and you don't know why you said yes. Maybe they shut them up, because they keep, keep on asking you. But maybe because you're like, I don't know, maybe I should go. I was impelled to go, I went. Now, I got up that morning, and I got up earlier than I should have, uh, because I wanted to find, before I go to this church and subject myself to a sermon, I wanted to find something in the Quran and the Bible that I could reconcile their differences, their deep differences. So I had, I had them both sticky-tabbed and color-coded on their theological, historical, and other differences, and I couldn't do it. That morning I was wrestling with it, and I was like, you know what, I'm just rationalizing, I'm just rationalizing. This is not working. And so I, I, they, they pull up to the house, I run out of the house to go to the, to, I don't run, I walk, over into the car, and I'm a kind of a talker, I'm not afraid to talk, and that morning I was silent, because I was already kind of in a bad mood, I was upset, because I couldn't get this to work. I'm like, oh, what's wrong, what's, what's the matter with you? I'm like, oh, I'm tired, man, I mean, I'm getting up early on a Sunday like this, this is crazy, it's beautiful outside, it's a summer day, we should go play volleyball or something. I'm like, no, 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 you promised to go to church. I'm like, okay, fine, we'll go. So I go to the church, and I had one of these experiences. We were meeting in high school, um, ironically enough, and I had one of these experiences, maybe you've had this, where you remember everything about that service. They were playing a secular song, on, the band was playing a song as people were coming in, but it had a deep meaning to it, and I think it was I Don't Want to Wait by Natalie Merchant. I think that, that, was, that was the artist's name. Um, and the whole idea is don't wait for your life to be over before you come to grips with things you need to come to grips with. I remember hearing that song. I'm like, that's weird. They're playing a secular song at a church. I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, and then I sat way up, way up. And um, as the pastor's speaking, I had this experience where he was talking to me. Maybe you've had this experience where the pastor's not talking to the guy to the right of you or the one to the left of you, but you. 
he broke into your email account, he read your Facebook wall, he saw your Twitter, whatever it was, and he's got your number. Now normally it's very convicting. You're like, I'm gonna change my life for the good, and you're like fired up when you leave the church. Well that happened to me, and I wasn't fired up in the slightest bit. I was extremely irritated. How dare he? And here I am being convicted by what he's saying, slowly but surely, more and more. And as he's doing that, I'm getting more uncomfortable. I'm thinking, this is, this is about me. This is about me. This is about me. This is what he said at the end of the sermon. This is what he said. He says, God has been leaning on the door your whole life, and you have been leaning back. And if you would just stop, he will flood every room in your home, and the Holy Spirit will cleanse you over the course of your life. He wants that for you. And then he said this, is that you? And I knew it was me. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here for the same reason I was there. What a beautiful poem that would be. So I was irritated. <laughs> and I walk out, and um, I didn't really have much to say. And so the woman, who's now my wife, was standing next to me. I walk in this parking lot, and I had two friends who were with me as well, and they were in front of me. And as I walked out, I began to hunch over because I felt a weight, a physical weight, pushing me down. And I went, I put my hands on my knees to keep myself from falling. And as I did this, I closed my eyes and I could see like a, I'm not sure if it was a vision or what it was, but I could see these two enormous books that were on top of me, like building-sized books that I was holding up like Atlas holding up the world. And they were crushing me. I was trying to reconcile these two enormous books and they would not be reconciled. And now, so I'm Middle Eastern, right? So I'm a passionate guy, I talk with my hands, I get fiery, um, and I'm emotional. But I'm not gonna cry in public in front of a woman. Um, I'm too macho for that, but I did. Um, and so I'm crying there and she's crying because she's like, he's huge, if he passes out, who's gonna help me? Um, now that day, I did not become a Christian. What I realized was I had built this fence that I'm sitting on, and this fence, this chain link fence, is one you know, pointy on top. And no matter how I sit and how I shift my weight, it hurts. And I hate the fence, I hate it. So I decided that very day, I'm going to tear this fence apart link by link. I'm not gonna sit on the fence, I'm gonna decide one way or the other. I had graduated law school, passed the bar exam, all my friends were working or in school, so I had eight hours a day to study, and I dedicated my life to studying various isms and schisms of all the various issues around the world, atheism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, centering on Islam and Christianity mostly, because I found those to be the most credible, and as I was doing it, I was seeing the evidence for Christianity mount. I was sitting in my parents' den at their house. I wasn't moved out yet. My job hadn't started as a lawyer yet. And plus, Arabs don't move out of the house until they're married anyway. That's how it works. Um, which is becoming an east, increasingly Western thing, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm sitting at this, this, this desk in my parents' home, and I have all the evidence piled as high as my eye on the left side in favor of Islam. All the evidence for Christianity piled on the right side, playing on the computer behind me over the internet this is back in the dial-up days when the, when the internet got mad at you for joining, you know, when it would make these noises like Some of you remember that, right? Um, a 30-minute video took three hours to buffer. Um, and I'm listening to this debate between a Christian and a Muslim on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. I'm literally surrounded by the evidence. And I found the evidence for the gospel so 
compelling. So compelling. Intellectually. But I wasn't embracing it. It didn't make the longest journey something can make, the 17 inches south from the head to the heart. It wasn't doing it. And I began to pray out loud. God, why? Why can't I embrace this as true? I know it's true. Why can't I embrace it as true? And then my prayer was answered. He gave me my answer. My dad walked by. He looked at me. And he smiled. So proud of his studious son, his good Muslim son. I knew it. How do you take your hand, plunge it into his chest, pull out his heart, and then show it to him? I knew right then and there, it wasn't that I, I couldn't believe, it's that I wouldn't believe, because the price was just too high. Over the course of some days and some weeks, I began to find myself reading the Bible, not to see if it's true, but to pull the truths out of it. And I found the person of Jesus so compelling. Now, why don't you remember something, okay? I believe that God is the greatest possible being. As a Muslim, I believed that. And I was looking for a way to believe in a God who was the greatest possible being. And I remember where I was when I, when, I, when, I, when I saw the scripture verses that actually showed me that what I was looking for in Islam was actually found in the Bible. See, if God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way. What is the greatest possible way to express love? It's not a mystery. It's sacrifice. If you're a parent, you already know this. And you know, we, we, we exchange love with sweet words and boxes of chocolates and whatever to our, to our sweetheart and all that stuff because we want to impress them. But there's some selfishness in our selflessness, isn't there? Because we want to be her Romeo and she can be our Juliet, although that story ended badly. Don't go too far. Um, uh, but there's some element of us, in our, even, our, even our sacrifice is about us. And so we sacrifice for those who love us back, maybe for a stranger if you were in the service, like Mr. Leibowitz was in the service, and he gave his, he gave his all for those he, didn't, he never even met. We do that. But we don't sacrifice for those who hate us because our love has limits. And so God, being the greatest possible being, expresses the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice for those who hate him. That must be the case. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. All of a sudden, you know, and it's only the Lord of glory, the Lord of words, the Lord of language, who can eloquently be so efficient in what he says. For God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest possible being, expressing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. And so if God is great, if Allahu Akbar, if he's the greatest possible being, he simply must be the God of the cross and empty tomb. And when I realized that whatever I would pay was nothing compared to what he had paid, that's when God turned me into a son out of a stone. And I gave my life to him. Let me end with this. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, and take me home, with joy shall fill my heart, and I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Thank you. God bless you.
want to take just a moment, if you're here and you've been checking out Jesus and you've been kind of looking over the wall of faith and you've been wondering, is Jesus really who the scriptures say that he is? Maybe your friends have shared that they believe and have found him to be. If that's you and you're at this point where you know it's time for you to surrender who you are to Jesus to accept God's love as so clearly expressed through Christ and his sacrifice for us. If you're at that place where you know it's time for you to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask that you would pray a very simple prayer with me right now. It's just a simple prayer. Simple, but extremely profound and life-changing. But a prayer would go something like this, and if you sense the need to pray it with me, I'm gonna ask that we would all close our eyes. But the prayer would go something like this, Jesus, I don't know everything there is about who you are, but in this moment I sense that you are calling me to surrender my life to you. Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive me for the things that I've done, the places that I've been. God, in this moment, forgive me, cleanse me. And Jesus, I now invite you to be the center of my life and the center of everything that I am. Jesus, I ask for this and I trust for it and I pray for it now, putting my faith, my belief, and my trust in you. In Christ's name, amen and amen.